nation building. The idea is terrifying. In, in our world today, there is no such thing as nation building where there has not been the destruction of a nation first, usually through a long and bloody war. But try for a moment to take the idea of nation building out of that context and, and think about it in, in an abstract manner, if you can. If you were to build a, a new nation, to form a new nation on a new plot of earth, what, what would be key to that? What would be essential to the formation of a new nation, of a new people? Maybe you would institute various holidays and celebrations to, to commemorate the nation's founding and, and give it a, a hope and a vision for the future. If you left things there, it might be an utterly chaotic nation. A happy one, but utterly chaotic. So, so maybe you would decide to appoint leaders or judges to uphold the nation's identity, principles, and, and values enumerated in law. It could even be wise to select a lead representative of the whole. Identify public servants who could address local issues. And spokesmen who would continually advocate for the nation's ideals. If you were to go about building a nation in that way, then you would be doing something like Moses was doing in Deuteronomy chapter 16 to 18. In, in these chapters, the chapters that we plan to study together this morning, Moses prepares the people of Israel for life as a nation in the land, in the promised land of Canaan after the conquest, after a long and bloody battle. But what does this have to do with you and me? What does this have to do with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we don't apply these chapters from Deuteronomy to our lives as Christians in a direct one-to-one -one fashion. We're not building a kingdom on earth. Uh, we're not to go and build a nation that celebrates these feasts that we see here or establishes these offices that we find in these chapters. And that's not what we as the New Testament people of God are called to do. Uh, America, for example, is not God's chosen nation and neither is any other nation on this earth. For Jesus is the king of all nations. He is the king of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. The local church, however, is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven. The church is to be a, a local expression of what it means to live under the rule and reign of the just judge, the sovereign king, the perfect priest, and the preeminent prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ. What we learn from these chapters is that every aspect of our identity as the New Testament people of God is tied up with Jesus. Every celebration and joy we have is rooted and grounded in Him. Every office teaches us about His just character, His sacrificial service, His redeeming rule, and His saving speech. What we learn from these chapters, then, is that every attribute of our lives as the New Testament people of God is shaped around Jesus and oriented toward glorifying Him through imitating and imaging Him. This is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from Deuteronomy chapters 16 to 18. If you haven't done so already, let me go ahead and invite you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 16. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 159. 
159. And while you're turning there, please allow me to remind us of where we are in Deuteronomy. The goal of Moses' preaching here in Deuteronomy, and this is really a sermon, a last sermon from Moses, is to prepare Israel for life in the promised land. Moses, in this book, he's often going to say something like, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and then he will go on and give some practical instruction to Israel uh, on one matter or another. So in the first 11 chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses has reminded Israel, this nation, uh, of her history of how she has been redeemed and rescued from slavery in Egypt, how she's been led through the wilderness by God. And it was in light of that history that God called Israel to give, to give them their hearts, to give Him their hearts. In, in, in chapters 12 to 28, what that looks like, what it means to give the Lord your heart, is fleshed out as we meet various laws and statutes and commands that Israel is to keep once they enter the land. So, so last week, we studied Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 15. And we learned that God wanted His holy character reflected in every aspect of the corporate life of the people of Israel. He wanted His holiness displayed in their worship, in their conduct, and in their generosity. And this morning, as we turn to study Deuteronomy chapters 16 to 18, Moses continues to explain that God wants His holy character displayed through the nation's feasts and the nation's leaders. And this morning, we're going to look at this call to total holiness, holiness in every part of their life together, uh, under five headings, holy feasts, holy judgments, holy kings, holy priests, and holy prophets. And I'll repeat each of those as we're moving into each new section. And let me just go ahead and kind of show my hand on the front end of this sermon. Uh, all of what we find here in Deuteronomy chapter 16 to 18 points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm going to argue from the Old Testament and from the New. So we, we apply these chapters to our lives as transformed and deepened through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and in light of the inspired witness of the New Testament. So let's, let's do that now or begin to do that now with our first point, Holy Feasts. We learn about Holy Feasts in Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to look at verses 1 to 17. But for now, just follow along as I read from Deuteronomy chapter 16 verses 1 to 8. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make His name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it, Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset, at the time you came out of Egypt. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. 
For six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Well, here we meet the first of uh, the first feasts in, uh, mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, during which the, the Passover was celebrated. Uh, these celebrations especially recalled Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. Israel's whole calendar was reconstructed around these events, and that's why uh, these celebrations occurred in the first month of Israel's year. The Passover feast recalled the night that the Lord passed over the homes of the people of Israel and spared their firstborn sons from judgment and death. Now, if you remember from Exodus, the, the people of Egypt were not so fortunate. Uh, according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 30, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There was not a house where someone was not dead, we read in Exodus 12. The people of Israel were spared because in faith they had put to death a spotless lamb and spread its blood across the top and the, uh, of, the, of the, the door and the side doorposts of their home. That sacrificial lamb bore the judgment that their sons would have borne. And after slaughtering that lamb, the people of Israel were to eat it with unleavened bread. That's why the Feast of Unleavened Bread is so closely associated with the Passover. The people are told to eat this lamb in Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, and their stabs in their hands. This was a picture of a people ready to depart, ready to, to leave at that very moment. The bread eaten with the Passover lamb was unleavened because when they were in Egypt preparing... For their departure, they had no time to prepare the bread and, and let it rise. And this event became the Old Testament paradigm and picture of salvation. And the New Testament authors understood these events to be pointing forward to Jesus, the Passover lamb. So in, in John, John's gospel, in John chapter 1 verse 29, uh, the, John the Baptist calls Jesus the, the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Now, as we thought about last week, from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul tells us to put away sin, like the people of Israel were to remove leaven from their bread during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And he tells us to do so because, and here's Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And just like the Passover lamb, Jesus was spotless and without blemish. He knew no sin. We read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He was slain or crucified at the time of Passover. That's what Mark's gospel teaches in Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 41. And just as the people of Israel were preserved by the blood of the Lamb, so Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead and that He is the one who freed us from our sins by His blood. This holy feast recalled the holy God's loving rescue of His people. And the next feast mentioned in Deuteronomy 16, the Feast of Weeks, you see it there in verses 9 to 12, that feast expressed gratitude for the Lord's generous provision. That's the focus of this feast. The Feast of Weeks, it's sometimes known as Pentecost. Pentecost is a reference to the number 50, which is roughly how many days uh, after the harvest began. This feast was a, 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 it was a big one. Uh, and we know that by the fact that Israel, take a look at verse 10, you see there that Israel was to give back to the Lord as generously as He had given to them. Uh, Pentecost 
was to be a time of celebrating the outpouring of God's blessings upon His people through the harvest. And as, as you can see from verse 11, the Lord was sure to provide and bless every member of the Israelite society. The Lord is sure to bless and provide every member of His church with a great gift today too, an incomparable gift even. And He provides every believer with this gift in fullness. Jesus fulfilled the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Remember, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection at Pentecost, Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit upon His disciples gathered in Jerusalem. And Peter had to explain to those in his hearing that this is what was happening. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter, he, he stood up and he preached from Joel chapter 2 about the outpouring of the Spirit. He reminded the crowd in Jerusalem that the prophet Joel said that one day all of God's people would have God's Spirit. And just as Pentecost was meant to be a festival celebrating the abundance of God's harvest, so there was a great harvest and ingathering in Jerusalem on that day. It's about 3,000 people were saved by the work of the Spirit in Christ. 3,000 were added to Jesus' church. And, and Pentecost really still takes place today in the sense that when a person puts their faith in Christ, they receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And, and what a wonderful gift we have in the Holy Spirit. He, he mediates our dear Savior's presence to us. He, he writes God's law upon our hearts and, and gives us new desires. He doesn't do it all at once. But slowly and surely we are changed and made more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, the final feast that turns up in chapter 16 is the Feast of Booths. Uh, this feast, feast is found in, in verses 13 to 15. The Feast of Booths was a feast recalling the Lord's faithfulness to His people while they dwelt in tents or, or booths in the wilderness. In, in that sense, this feast looks forward and backward. Right? It, it looks forward to a time when the people of Israel uh, were no longer wandering in the wilderness as they were presently in, in the book of Deuteronomy when it was written. And yet, when the Israelites crossed the river Jordan and settled in the promised land, they would, they would look back on their time at Sinai and their wanderings through the wilderness. And the Lord desired that the people of Israel remember their past and really His past faithfulness to them as He was present with them, with His people, every step of the way. The Gospel of John is full of explanations of how Jesus fulfills the Feast of Booths. Not only are we told, told that Jesus dwelt, that He boothed, or literally tabernacled, uh, among us in John chapter 1, verse 14, but in John chapter 7, Jesus makes Himself the center of the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Uh, the, the hope of the Feast of Booths is found in Jesus because just as God rescued His people from Egypt and dwelt with them in the wilderness, so Jesus rescues His people from sin and death and dwells with them by His Holy Spirit. Jesus is God with us because He took on flesh. Jesus dwelt in the booth of human flesh. He walks among us on this earth. But Jesus is also God with us because He has given us the gift of His Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus could say at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Behold, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. As the people of Israel celebrated these three feasts according to the command of the Lord, their identity as a people 
and as a nation was being shaped and reinforced. They were people who had been redeemed and rescued from slavery. They were people whom, whose God dwelt among them and lived with them in their very presence. They were a people who, whose God provided for them and sustained them. They were people who belonged to God. Through these holy feasts, the people of Israel were reminded that their holy joy was found in their holy God. He was always with them and for them. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Paul teaches us that these feasts were a shadow of the things to come. Think about that imagery, right? A shadow is cast forward. As you're walking down the road and the sun is at your back, the shadow is cast forward. And when we finally get to the person who is casting that shadow, we, we see all this clearly. Paul teaches that these feasts were a shadow of things to come, but that their substance belongs to Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was what these feasts were pointing toward. Our God is with us and for us too. And this is the whole of our joy. I hope you noticed in these verses how these feasts were to bring God's people joy. Take a look at verse 11. Stick your nose in verse 11. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Now verse 14. You shall rejoice in your feast. And the end of verse 15. So that you will be altogether joyful. God wanted His people to be filled with joy. Christian, what these feasts point to should bring you joy. Jesus is our Passover lamb who has come to take away our sin. Jesus has poured out his spirit upon us. And so we are able to rejoice that God is our father. And Jesus is with us now and will be with us until he takes us home. These holy feasts point to our holy savior and inculcate holy joy. Israel was to be a nation marked by joy. And they were also to be a nation marked by justice. This is what we want to think about in our second point. Holy judgments. Beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 18 and stretching through chapter 17 verse 13 we meet God's great concern that judges and priests in the nation of Israel issue holy judgments and that the people themselves honor those judgments as from God. So please follow along as we think about this next point, holy judgments. Follow along as I read just the first couple of verses of, uh, of this section. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 to 20. Deuteronomy 16, verses 18 to 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. And you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Here, the, the system of justice that was erected back in Exodus chapter 18 on the wisdom of Jethro's advice, Moses' father-in-law, here this, this system is recapitulated and reinforced. In, in Exodus 18, we were presented with this problem. Moses was all alone, uh, and he would sit on his own and 
render judgment after judgment all day long. He was overwhelmed by this. And Moses was essentially, he was arbitrating legal issues between parties based on the standard of God's decrees and laws, as one commentator said. So appointing judges who could deal with local matters, or matters locally, would expedite justice and judgments. In these verses we hear a drumbeat, not just for any judgment, but for righteous judgment. In any society, there is a need for righteous judgment, verse 18. When justice is perverted or, or bribes are accepted, verse 19, a whole society teeters on the edge. And, and verse 20 makes the central concern of this system abundantly clear. Justice and only justice you shall follow. No, no matter what, these judges were to be just. And that is because they were to reflect God's character and God's commitment to justice. Now we know what justice is because God has revealed Himself. Because He's revealed His just character. He is the standard of righteous judgment. These judges were to apply the principles of righteousness revealed in the character of God and His law to the cases that came before Him. An injustice takes place when a harmful act occurs against someone's person or property. Assault, battery, kidnapping, and murder may be examples of harmful acts against someone's person. Uh, theft, larceny, kidnapping, uh, oh, sorry, uh, theft, larceny, desecration of property, uh, various violations of contract which bring about financial harm uh, may be examples of a, of a harmful act against one's property. Um, Consider again how important it would be for these judges to avoid partiality. Uh, justice is perverted or even denied when partiality creeps in. Partiality is, is giving preference to one person over another because of who he is or what he possesses or what he can offer. Uh, James 2 describes a case of partiality when preferential treatment is given to the rich over the poor. And the reverse can also be true. Actually, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15, we read this. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. Among other things, it is in the best interest of society to have a justice system that does not give preferential treatment to persons based upon their biological sex, ethnic background, or socioeconomic status. And so for those of you here who work in the field of law, please continue to be concerned about justice, true justice, pure justice. Be mindful of how a law or regulation may be inclined to show preference to one person over another. Be impartial. Uh, this is a sincere and real way you can love and bless your neighbor. This is also a real and meaningful way that you can reflect the character of our just God. Impartiality is even to mark the elders of the New Testament church. So in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, Paul tells young Timothy, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So brothers and sisters, members of this church... Pray that the elders of Arlington Baptist would be impartial. 
Pray that we be impartial in everything, impartial uh, as we help to settle disputes. Uh, pray that God would mark each member of our congregation with a desire for justice, true justice, pure justice. And pray that we would remember that the final judgment has been handed over to Jesus. Justice will be carried out imperfectly in this life. And that is a great pain to many. Justice will be carried out imperfectly in this life. But we can trust that in the end, Jesus will right all wrongs. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 reminds us that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, so of this coming judgment, He has given us assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. There is a day fixed when all wrongs will be righted by God in which they'll be judged by Jesus. And we need to trust that even as we live in this difficult world where injustice occurs too often. Now perhaps your, your eyes have skipped ahead uh, down to verse 21 of chapter 16. They've even started to wander into chapter 17. That's fine, you're allowed to look ahead. Um, if you've read or, or skimmed some of these verses, you might be wondering what they have to do with justice. You know, suddenly in these verses, uh, we're reading about someone who has planted a tree of a false god next to Yahweh's altar, next to God's altar. That's verses 21 and 22. And then in chapter 17, verse 1, you see that we read about someone who's, who's brought Yahweh a sacrifice that does not meet the standards described earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 19 to 23. And then in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 17, we're, we're reading about those who have uh, worshipped gods depicting the sun and moon and stars and, and being stoned for it. What does all of this have to do with justice? Well, part of God's justice in Israel was to extend uh, to, to the punishment of those who worship false gods. See, only Yahweh is worthy of worship. And it is not only wrong to withhold the worship due to Him, it is also wrong to give it to another. Old Testament Israel was a theocracy. They were monotheistic. And as the first and second commandments teach us, Thou shalt have no other gods but me. Before no idol, bow thy knee. Verse 2 reveals uh, these were transgressions of God's covenant, violations of God's law. And from chapter 16, verse 21 to chapter 17, verse 5, we have examples of sins that need to be brought to the bar of justice. And verses 6 and 7 of chapter 17 teach us the process for that justice. Not only were judges in Israel to be just, but witnesses in Israel had to be just too. You see, Yahweh would not accept as valid the testimony of merely one witness. In order to protect the accused from an unjust and inaccurate accusation, there had to be two or three witnesses. Not only that, but they, those witnesses, they would have to be the first ones to cast the first stones. If they were willing to accuse someone of sin deserving death, then they must be prepared to serve as God's first instruments in carrying out that justice and judgment. This law would encourage truth-telling, which in many ways is a part of the backbone of a just society. This law is also reminiscent of what we learn in the Ninth Commandment. Do not lie, but always say what is true. 
just as God's people are prohibited from taking material possessions, so they are prohibited from taking immaterial possessions too. It is through a false witness that a person's good reputation, the theft of a good name, can be stolen. This law is a good gift of God as it seeks to protect the names and lives of the righteous by requiring two or even three witnesses. We must be truth tellers. And when we charge someone with injustice, we should name the injustice particularly. Shouldn't leave it as a vague charge, but name it specifically. Verses 8 to 13 of chapter 17 explain something of an appeals process. When cases could not be decided by local judges, they would be turned over to the Levitical priests. And here, uh, Israel is urged to accept their judgment, to accept the judgment of the priests. And rejecting the judgment of God's ordained judges and priests amounts to rejecting God's just judgment. The priests and judges were earthly representatives of the heavenly God. And in building this nation, Moses makes plain that Israel, they were required to have holy feasts, and they were to pursue holy judgments. And Israel, as we see in our next point, was to have holy kings. This is what Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 to 20 are about. They're to have a king holy, completely committed to loving God and His law. And this would have stood out as different and distinct from the nations around them. Remember, part of the focus of these chapters is how is Israel going to live as a different nation than the nations that had preceded them in that land. So often the nations uh, were ruled and governed by the whims of the one in power. But it was not to be so in Israel. Their king was to himself be ruled by God and by His law. And in turn, he was to rule according to God and His law. He was to represent God Himself. This is what we think about in our third point, holy kings. Let's read verses 14 to 20 of chapter 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One among, from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, verse 14, I don't know about you, but verse 14 is astounding to me. Moses he foresees 
the essence of what actually takes place later on in 1 Samuel chapter 8, where Israel rejected God's judge, rejected God himself by demanding to have a king like the nations. Deuteronomy chapters 12 to 28, as I mentioned, are, are almost all about distinguishing Israel from the nations. And that meant in part that God himself was their king. They, they didn't need a king like the nations, for they had God as their king, the one who made the nations. Still, as a concession, Moses is willing to grant Israel's stubbornness. But notice how Moses even regulates this request. Israel may have a king, but God must choose their king. Now, do you remember what we heard from our scripture reading earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 35, when the voice came from heaven of the Son, of Jesus, God the Father said, This is my Son, my chosen one. Jesus is God's chosen king. And not only did Israel have to have, not only did their king have to be chosen by God, but he had to be from among Israel. He couldn't be a foreigner. Verses 16 and 17 teach us that, that there, are, uh, there are things that kings of God's people must keep from. Uh, he must not acquire many horses, many wives, or excessive silver and gold. Why? Well, right there is the issue in verse 17. Lest his heart turn away. See, holiness is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart's commitments to God and to His holiness. As the heart of the king goes, so goes the nation. How many times do we see that in Israel's history? How many times does a king in Israel's history lead them away from God as he gives himself to idols? Too many times. So many times, in fact, that the king's idolatry in Israel's history, they eventually exacerbate Israel's idolatry and it eventually brings them under God's just judgment and into exile, takes them out of the very land that God had planted them in. As the king goes, as the heart of the king goes, so goes the nation. And the reverse is, is true too. Uh, when we meet a good king in Israel's history, like a king like Josiah, who takes God's law seriously, many under his rule begin to love God's law again. And that is what Jesus is doing today. He has led the way in loving God's law. And slowly but surely, he is bringing God's people back to a love for God's law too. Often, as we think about politics today, we are inclined to think about how our elected representatives are a representation of what is in the heart of the people. And so in an election, we get a reflection of the people. I think that's true to a certain extent. But it is also true that our elected officials encourage and cultivate in their very public representation a kind of attitude and outlook on life in this world. And as Christians, when we go about our civic engagement, it is true that we should be mindful that we're not electing a pastor. And still it is utter foolishness if we care nothing about a man or woman's character. What is in their heart will either tend toward greater blessing or greater burden for those under their care. 
And so for the love of our neighbor, we should care about the character in our elected representatives. To be sure, our hopes as Christians are not for one millisecond dependent upon those who sit on the thrones of this earth. Our hopes are only and always dependent upon the one who is the king of heaven and earth. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you should sleep soundly after elections, no matter how they go. No matter who goes in this house or out of that house, no matter who sits on this or that seat of power, we of all people, as believers in Jesus Christ, must go about our lives in this world happily confident that Jesus' heart never turned away from loving God the Father. And He reigns over all. Jesus had God's law written on His heart. And we know that because He kept God's law in full. The kings of Israel, as we see here, they were to write their own copy of God's law and read it every day. They were to read it every day so that they would know it. But Jesus, He surpassed them all. He is the one who wrote the law in the first place. He is the one who loved the law and lived the law. He feared the Lord and kept all of His words and statutes and did them. Verse 19. What is more, Jesus' heart was never lifted up above His brothers. You see verse 20. No, we learn from Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that Jesus humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is why God the Father lifted Him up from the grave and gave Him the name that is above every name, making Him King over His people and over all the earth. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our Holy King. In His conquering compassion, he has subdued us. And in His mighty mercy, He rules us. And in His generous grace, He defends us. All that the people of Israel had hoped for in a king, we have in Jesus. And we have more. To, to use the words of verse 20, because Jesus is the perfectly holy king, He will continue long in His kingdom. He will continue in His kingdom without end. And we who believe in Him will continue with Him. Jesus is God the Father's final chosen one, His finally holy King. And Jesus is also God's preeminent priest, which is the office that we meet next in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, we meet holy priests in Israel and how their hearts and hopes are not to be tied to an earthly inheritance, but to the Lord, who is their inheritance. As Israel went about her life in the promised land, the, the priests and, and their example of living for the Lord and being satisfied in Him would have served as a model to every individual Israelite. And as we think about our next point, holy priests, uh, let's read Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as He promised them. 
And this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach, the first fruits of your grain and of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. In these verses, we are reminded that the priests and Levites were not going to be given an ordinary inheritance, the common inheritance that was coming to the people of Israel when they entered into the promised land. They weren't going to be given kind of this large plot of land like the rest of the tribes, a single place where the whole tribe could live together. If the priests and Levites aren't given an inheritance, a place to live in the land, then where would they live? Well, uh, Joshua chapters 13 and 21 recount what takes place when the Levites, when the people of Israel, uh, actually enter, conquer, and begin to settle in the promised land. Uh, Instead of be giving a a single and large plot of land where the whole tribe would live uh, together, the Levites were actually to be scattered throughout the the land in various cities. And, And the purpose, or part of the purpose, was so that all of Israel could have contact with these priests. And why would that be important? Why would it be important that Israel have contact, all of Israel have contact with the priests? Well, it's important because the Levites were to be the religious leaders in Israel. They were charged with helping Israel to love God and to know God and to know His law and to keep His law. And the Lord would provide for these priests, uh, for the Levites, through the offerings that the tith- and tithes that the various tribes were to bring to, to these Levites living near them. So scattering the the Levites throughout the land would also not overburden one particular tribe. And so abundantly provide for the small collection of priests living in that locality. Uh, Let's let's be honest about how the Levites might be uh, feeling about this. I mean, don't you think that the Levites would have wanted some land to call their own? I mean, it's tangible, it's certain, they can know it. Don't you think they would have wanted that promise? I think they would have wanted an inheritance like that. But notice that they're given something better. Notice the peculiar kindness of God to the Levites. He gives them something better than land. He gives them himself. Take a look at verse 2. Verse 2. The Lord is their inheritance. You see, God essentially says to the priests and Levites, I, I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Could God be more generous? Is there a gift on this earth worth more than God Himself? And could there be any greater motivation for bearing up under the challenging call of representing God to the people and the people to God? When God has given so much to them, how could they not give their service to Him? God was the ultimate gift and treasure that the Levites received. And He is our great treasure too. That's what we prayed as Clark led us in prayer. We pray that God is our treasure. The Lord is better than land. And Christian, you better believe that. Uh, If you can imagine the promised land of heaven without the Lord Jesus, then you're not imagining the same place that God has prepared for His people. And that is how you need to stand and serve 
and minister in this world. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your family and your friends need to know that you're not finally concerned with an earthly inheritance, but a heavenly one, where your soul's reward is Jesus. Listen to how the, the writer to the Hebrews described Jesus' priestly ministry, because Jesus fulfills the, the office of priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, Jesus shows us the end and goal of the priestly office in Israel by offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. And now, now that Jesus has served in this way, now that he's reconciled us to God, now Jesus calls us to serve as priests, to be ministers of reconciliation. Did you know that? That we, as Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, are called to be priests in this world. Listen to what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is what Peter writes to Christians. As you come to Jesus... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, we are to be priests, ministers, servants in this world. And how might we offer our services and spiritual sacrifices to God? Well, are we ready to serve our co-workers, our, our neighbors, and our friends? Have we opened the door to them? Uh, have we said uh, to them something like, Hey, look, I know life gets hard in this world. Look, if you ever want to sit down and talk about it, know that my office door is open. I'd be, I'd be happy to talk with you about that. Or if you want to come over to my house and just talk, uh, I'd, I'd love to pray for you. If there's anything that's a burden to your heart, uh, feel free to share that with me. I, I want you to know that I'd be praying for you. I am praying for you. I think we want to try and open the door to conversations with our coworkers and friends and family members in a way like that. Make ourselves ready and available to serve them. And sometimes um, our friends and neighbors just need to know that. They just need to know that the door is open, that we genuinely care about them and that we want to serve them. Think about making that offer this week. Think about maybe a friend in the office or a neighbor uh, that, that maybe needs prayer. Uh, maybe that you can engage. Think about making that offer an overture. Pray about making that offer an overture. And actually make that offer. Uh, let's, let's begin by uh, being available to serve. You know, we don't have to have all the answers. But we can be available to love and to serve others. And in doing so, I think we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The priests in Israel... They were to be holy. They were to be wholly committed to serving the Lord. To be content with what He has chosen to give them Himself. And the office of prophet, however, was to serve the Lord in a different way. Judges, they carried out the rule of God. Kings were representatives of God. Priests were servants and mediators before God. And prophets, they were spokesmen for God. So let's turn now and consider our final point. Holy prophets. Here we're thinking about Deuteronomy 
chapter 18, verses 9 to 22. But for now, let's take a look at a smaller section. Let's read verses 9 to 15. Verses 9 to 15. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Well, once again, here in these verses, we're reminded that the people of Israel were not to take after the nations who inhabited the land before them. We could say that they were not to listen to or learn from those who sacrificed their children, who practiced divination, and, and so on. Instead, the people of God were to listen to the spokesman of God. Here, the people of Israel, they have a reassuring promise, too. God promised that He would not leave them without a spokesman. He promised that he would raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people of Israel. That promise is, is made in verse 15. You'll see it's mentioned again in verse 18. Yahweh even promised to put his words into his mouth. Uh, that means that his words would be trustworthy and true. And while God would raise up his prophets down through history, there would of course be those who would raise themselves up and pretend to speak on God's behalf. How would the people of Israel be able to discern whether or not a man uh, really was God's prophet? Well, at the end of the day, the people of Israel could discern a false prophet if he, if he spoke in the name of the Lord and his word did not come true. It's part of what these verses teach us. And this is why the testimony of Luke's gospel, which we read early in our service, is so astounding to me. So turn back, uh, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 9. I want us to look at verses 18 to 35 again. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's page, I believe it's page 867. If I've got that wrong, just let me know. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 35. Now, you remember that when we read them earlier, uh, they covered Peter's climactic confession that Jesus is the Christ, that He's, he's the Messiah, the one who's been, who we've been waiting for. But notice what these verses also contain. They contain a prediction they contain a prediction from Jesus. In verse 22, Jesus predicts or he foretells his coming rejection, his death, his resurrection. Jesus prophesied and his predictions all came true. They all came true. Not only that, but in, in the transfiguration, which takes place there in verses 20 to 36, Moses and Elijah... True prophets of God. They were tested in their time and proven to be true prophets of God. They're standing on Jesus' side. And what's the implication of that picture? Isn't the implication of that picture coming on the heels of Jesus' prediction of His death and resurrection? Part of the implication, isn't it that Jesus should be viewed as a true prophet of God like Moses and like Elijah? 
If that were not enough, look again at what the Father says in verse 35. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to Him. You see what's happening here? King and prophet are being smashed together. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 15, we learn that God's king had to be God's chosen one. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15, we're told that God's people must listen to God's prophet. And here's what God the Father is saying. Jesus is my king. Jesus is my prophet. So listen to him. And what did Jesus say? He said that he came to save sinners. He said that he came to be rejected, to be crucified, and to be raised from the grave on the third day. And he proved that he was a true prophet of God by keeping his word. And the only question that remains for us is this. Will we listen to him? Will we listen to Jesus? Will you listen to him? Will you believe him? Will you trust him? Will you obey him? If you do not listen to Jesus, if you do not listen to the Lord Jesus, then the sad truth is that you will have to answer to God. Let me just remind you of what Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 19 says. And there we read, And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. You see, you will have to give an answer to God if you do not listen to Jesus. Jesus is the last, final, and holy prophet that Mo Moses looked forward to. He is the great high priest of God's people. He is the loving king. He is the just judge and perfect lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. Will you listen to him? Friend, this is what we need. Jesus is who we need. What the scriptures predicted he would do and what he predicted he would do, he did. And he did precisely what we needed him to do in order to be saved. You see, we have all sinned against God. And we stand in danger of facing his eternal and just punishment. Just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have tried to set up our own rival kingdoms and live by our own rival rules. We've listened not to God's word, but to our own word. And God promised Adam and Eve that in the day in which they rebelled against his word and refused to listen to his word, that they would meet death. And death did enter into the world. And each one of us have followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps by rebelling against God's rule, by rebelling against God's word. And just like Adam and Eve, we deserve to face God's judgment and the eternal judgment that is due to our sin, which means that we need to be saved from that punishment. God sent Jesus, His one and only most beloved Son, to live the life that we should have lived. Perfect obedience to God and His Word. Jesus was obedient to God. He was committed to the mission of salvation and the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so He died on the cross, bearing the punishment for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and trust in Him. And God raised Him from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that Jesus conquered the enemy that is even now pursuing us. The enemy of sin and death. If we turn from our sins and place our faith in Jesus, we will be saved. And we will show that we have listened to Him. 
we will show that we truly see what kind of Messiah, what kind of King, what kind of Judge, what kind of Savior, Prophet, and Priest He really is. So have you confessed that Jesus is your Passover Lamb? Have you confessed that Jesus is the one that took the judgment that your sins deserve? Have you confessed that Jesus is your sovereign King and your merciful High Priest and God's true Prophet who speaks a word of love and forgiveness to you, to the Father on your behalf? Oh friends, turn from your sins and believe that Jesus came to suffer, be rejected, killed and raised from the grave in glory for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you want to know more about what it means to, to trust in Jesus and to turn from your sins, what it means for Him to be all that the Old Testament promised and all that you need for salvation before the Holy God, then please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a, a friend, uh, a member of this church at lunch downstairs. We'd, we'd love to talk to you about this good news. And as we conclude, I want us to think about how God has spoken to us His true and final word in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize this, but that's how our service began. Our service began with the words from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, see all of these ways that Deuteronomy is speaking to us. In these very many ways. Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's what Moses was. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. You know, today we don't have prophets like the Old Testament people of God have. We have something better. We have someone better. We have Jesus. Not only did Jesus fulfill the office of prophet, but He also fulfilled the office of priest, king, judge, and all of the feasts that the people of Israel were commanded to celebrate. And as He continues to build His church universally and locally, may we demonstrate and display His wonderful character to the world. Every aspect of our identity as the people of God is tied up with Jesus. Our lives are from Him. They are for Him. We give our lives to God through Him and to Him. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together.